Thank you for listening to the MicrobinFeed podcast. Here we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan of Enterobase, Grape Tree, and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Gubbins. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. Okay, in this episode, we're going to talk about bioinformatics software that no one's asking for. There are a lot of existing software packages out there. More often than not, the new tool you want to write already exists, or a new tool cannot effectively improve. So what we want to do is identify areas of peak bioinformatics. This episode is kind of more like a literature review in disguise, um, but maybe more of a casual conversation. And we're going to explore several subject areas. We'll talk in general terms. There's always a scope for a very specific use case. Generally, software is not needed, in our opinions, or I guess you'll, you guys will correct me, if there are a plethora of existing tools, the problem is more or less solved, the problem is more or less solved, or it has been shown to be unsolvable, the underlying technology or problem is now obsolete, or also maybe it's superseded by other methods. Yeah, I think we've all encountered this before, where uh, you get a PhD student and they've been tasked with, you know, writing up a new tool for assembly or for mapping or something like that, and you say, well, you know, why are you doing that? Or they've been told, go and look at 20 assemblers and come up with the best one. Well, that just seems to be a little bit of a waste of time because, you know, if you do a bit of a lit review, you'll find the answers immediately. Bioinformaticians doing a lit review? That's, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, obviously we all dive in and reinvent the wheel because it's a lot easier than uh, actually going and reading papers. But that's sort of the point here, right? We want to just touch on some of the major topics and just say what's state of the art and point out what's actually not required anymore. So I think one of the first areas, I think the lesson to begin with is, is microarrays. Oh yeah, like these went on for way too long. I remember like back in 29, 2010, and you know, all the large sequencing centers were pretty much putting the microarray sequencers in the skip. I don't know what that is in the US, but uh, more or less everyone had switched over to RNA-seq. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at the number of papers, right, the number of papers using microarray peaked four years later in 2014 at 82,000. And even still to this day, in 2018, there's 42,000 papers using microarray, which is incredible. This is a technology that's long, long dead. No big sequencing center is actually looking at. But, you know, you do, what you don't want to do is get caught in this long tail of, of science and research where things are long dead and, you know, the technology is now used by your grandparents as a Christmas present like 23andMe. But uh, yeah, and people are still running tools for it, which is even more shocking, you know? All the tools have been written and probably the, the people who wrote them are retired at this point. So the underlying question here is, are short reads going to a similar changeover? Well, I'd argue kind of, yeah, and you have to keep an eye out for these things, otherwise you'd be caught doing long tail science. So I think one of the 
we don't want to get up too bogged down in this particular topic, but I thought one good place to start would be alignment. So basic local or global alignment. This is a very, very old computer science problem. And there's a flavor written for almost everybody by now. If you think about multiple sequence alignment, which is probably the most complicated uh, problem in this space, the tools that everybody uses are things like MAFT and Muscle, and they were written in 2002 and 2004, respectively. I don't think we're going to suddenly see a new method that's going to change change that, unless you're very, very bright. But enough of that. Let's talk about something a bit more meaty. Well, what, what do you use for alignment? Well, I'll be using Muscle MAFT or BLAST or... That's it. If someone asks me multiple sequence alignment, I'm going to be using those two tools. All right. Well, I'd argue that Prank is quite good, although Prank is mapped underneath. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. So new tools, but it's still a fundamentally, fundamentally the same algorithm. I've had people like show me alignments with muscle, and they're just trying to align like their whole genome, their whole genome assembly, and it never works. Oh, that I'm doesn't work. Doing that. But just to be clear, multiple sequence alignment is a different problem to whole genome alignment. So we're talking, these are tools where we're talking like a few KB and they're all like a singular sequence. Like a gene. Like a gene or something like that. If you want to do an entire genome, then you've got to think of things like uh, Mauve or Sibelia or Muggsy, which are a little different in their uh, construction. Yeah, totally worth mentioning those. I I don't think I've seen it like recently with people doing that, but they always run into that problem and they say, like, Mega is still hanging on me, Lee, what's going wrong? It's like, well, what are you aligning? <laughs> anyway, um, I'm glad you mentioned Mav and all those guys. Um, well, again, those are still quite old, relatively speaking. I think Muggsy came out in 2011. Uh, give or take, but yeah, around there. And then, um, and it, it's just so hard to improve them. But um, I guess I guess Parsnip in the in the Harvest package um, is really good too for that kind of stuff. Yep, that's another one. I think that would be probably the most recent one I'm aware of that people would use uh, widely. Mm -hmm. So uh, just looking ahead uh, with genome assemblers, um, I guess. So there was this paper in 2011 that came out um, that compared genome assemblers, and I don't have the name in front of me. Oops. So it's um, it's Zang et al. 2011, a practical comparison of de novo genome assembly software tools for our next generation sequencing technologies. And um, 2011 in terms of genome assembly is quite old, actually, but I thought they had a good comparison in here. And um, in 2019, I would say that right now we're looking still at some assemblers from that time, um, Spades and Velvet for sure, and a newer one that came out in 2018 from NCBI called Skiza. So um, it's a <clears throat> I was just going to say, uh, Velvet hasn't really been updated in years because the guy developing it uh, disappeared off, you know, to do other wonderful things. So, but yeah, that's the backbone of many uh, pipelines, and yet it can't actually work or it doesn't work very well for a much longer reason you have now coming out of Illumina. Yeah, I, I think Illumina was the, the, the hot chemistry at the time, but, uh, and, it's, and it's still widely used, but um, we have to look at long read now too. So 
So uh, now we're looking at things like HGAP, and um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, fly. I've never heard it pronounced. Canoe, raw, and unicyclar. And I would say um, a lot of assemblies that I see, um, um, people are using HGAP or canoe. I don't know, what, what are people using it around you guys for a long grade assembly? We've been playing around with fly, and it does pretty well. I've done a lot of uh, HGAP assembly, um, like thousands of them, uh, with corresponding canoe assemblies. And I can honestly say canoe is better than HGAP. I haven't <laughs> applied yet, but in terms of unicycler, I find that to be very, very good as well for bacteria. Um, but ultimately, right, it all comes down to how good your data is. And all of these algorithms under the hood use similar kinds of things. Like. Yeah, and I mean, in, in terms of the scope of what if you wanted to write a new assembler, for either short reads or long reads, what else is there to solve? Or what different angle is there? Well, there is people go out and uh, I know there's groups around the world who are, have their own in-house assemblers, you know, and they, they never really, they publish them or no one ever used them or whatever, but there's no point in writing a brand new assembler since nothing really has changed. It's tweaking. Like, do you remember that Spades blog post? Skiza, you know, was beating the pants off Spades and mm -hmm. Shovel was doing much better uh, uh, Shovel was doing much better assemblies than spades, and then it just turned out that if you tweak a few parameters at spades, more or less they all come out with the, the similar results. I was really surprised by that blog post because um, it basically came out of nowhere saying that they admitted their faults, and you don't see that all the time. Yeah, but it's good, you know. But at the same time, spades came out years ago. Was it what six, seven years ago? Yes, but I think they've keep uh, changing the internals a lot to keep it current. Mm -hmm. um, even in terms of just assessing which is the best assemblers is quite difficult. I tried to do this in my young days and basically between versions you would have enough difference that you suddenly whatever point you wanted to make it's, it, it, it's gone, it's obsolete. <laughs> and so I can't imagine trying to write an entire assembler that you can say that is fundamentally going to perform out, outperform the others at the moment. Yeah. There, there was an assemblathon um, paper, wasn't there, where they found Mazurka, I think, was the best assembler. But I, I seem to remember the guys running the assemblathon were from the same lab <laughs> that uh, developed Mazurka. So, oh, know. is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, Salzburg. So another mainstay of analysis, of our analysis toolkit is short read mapping. And I would say that short read mapping is pretty, pretty much solved problem. You have a multitude of options, BWA, Bowtie2, uh, BB tools. You can even just use Blast if you, if you really want to. There's Smalt, which is from the Sanger. Unpublished. It's, it's well used though. I've seen it in plenty of publications. Yeah, but it's well. still not published after many years. <laughs> Do you, do you feel like it's bespoke? It, well, it fundamentally is a different method compared to BWA and Bowtie, you know? So it's good for some things and it's not good for other things. But the big drawback there is that it is not published and that puts a lot of people off. Mm. Do, you, do you know um, whether or not it will be published or is it kind of left where it is? I, I know there was a publication being around, but they wanted to get into a high-impact journal. However, they struggled with that because, you know, it had been left a little bit too long. And then the people developing it moved on to new and uh, better things. And that is a problem as well. You know, if you look at um, 
if you look at minimap 2, no, sorry, BWAMM, that uh, was initially meant to be publication and they got rejected because it was no longer novels. And now it's sitting there on BioArchive or Archive and it's, you know, just pulling in vast numbers of citations, which proves that whichever editor rejected it was really, really silly. Yes. <laughs> but the difficulty in publication should be taken as a lesson, I suppose, that these things aren't really novel. There isn't that much scope. Unless you're Hang Lee. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure he's a person anymore. He's a machine. With, with Minimap2, um, he did put a blog post out recently where he said Minimap2 is much better for long reads, but ultimately BWA is better for short reads, and do not use Minimap2 for short reads. Yeah. And so a similar um, topic after this, once you've done your read mapping, is then your variant calling. And again, there's so many different tools. If you're using Snippy from Torsten Seaman internally, that's using Freebase. Uh, if you use something like the PHE uh, SNP pipeline uh, called Phoenix, that's using GATK. There's VIPR for viral um, variant calling as well. There's just I used um, mm -hmm. I used Freebase originally um, for the for the Haiti cholera outbreak actually. Um, so it was like the predecessor for my SNP pipeline live set, and we didn't we decided not to use it eventually in the polished pipeline because I got frustrated it wasn't producing a SNP call or or base call for every single site. It was only looking at variant calls, and I settled on uh, Verscan two instead. Vascan, yep. I think Vascan 2 is also a popular one. So more or less, uh, there is no point in redoing it because ultimately with SNP calling, it's all about just fine-tuning the parameters you want to put in, you know, uh, how many layers you allow for or what kind of coverage or whatever. Tweaks, more or less. And it doesn't matter which application you use, you're still going to make those tweaks. I mean, yeah, you can... Filtering. Uh, filtering. Yeah. You're, filtering. You're ultimately filtering on your pile up and there's plenty of existing options for it. I just, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think you're doing something wrong if you try to make your own snip color <laughs> or your new map, your own mapper. But the important thing here really is the underlying data. So if you get a really good reference that's close to your, your data, then you're going to get much better quality snip goals, you know? And that's what people sometimes forget. They just take whatever reference they come across or they've got in their back pocket, whereas they should be, you know, delving in and choosing something a little bit better. Yeah, I actually did like a little um, study with um, a student at the public health state lab at, in Virginia. Um, and they wanted to, to do a little study on how close a reference should be on a SNP pipeline actually. And, um, and they decided, ah, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, it was either 15 or 50,000 SNPs different from a bacterial reference genome started really skewing our results. 50 is of fair distance. Yes, it was something like on the serotype level. But it depends what you're looking at. You know, if you're trying to look for some mobile genetic elements from an outbreak, you need something that's in the outbreak as your reference, ideally. Yeah, I feel bad for not remembering those results. It, it turned into, uh, I think, a master's thesis. <laughs> There's also but, uh, this, um, this blog post that I think is just hilarious um, from the science web where it says every single bioinformatician had come up with their own um, remapper by, by the year or whatever. And it was just so funny to me. 
So I put a, a little URL in the in the show notes for that. Yeah, there was a there was a time where everybody had their own aligner. <laughs> yeah, every, every PhD student and postdoc would write their own variant column pipeline. Probably still do in some places. I have I actually do have my own um, variant caller on GitHub. I haven't deleted it, but it, I Same should out of just embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, actually, yeah, the, the thing that brings all of these together is workflow managers and uh, the kind of glue that, that binds everything. And ultimately, people very quickly get beyond bash scripts and you know, kind of dodgy bits of Perl, and they go for a workflow manager. And I remember for years working on, a, I suppose, a, an in-house special. It was publicly available, bespoke software, but uh, ultimately only one organization in the world used it. And the, you know, that organization had multiple different uh, bespoke pipelines just for running stuff. But luckily nowadays, there's a lot more options that are you know, widely used, like Snakemake, uh, Nextflow, Galaxy, that kind of thing. Um, my favorite is Galaxy at the moment, but I know other people have different opinions to view. I don't mind Galaxy. Uh, it's got comparable functionality to Nextflow or Snakemake. Yeah, I suppose the advantage is Galaxy is more point and click, whereas Nextflow, it's, it feels to me more like programming where you have to sit there and kind of craft something. So you have more, more power, but at the same time, it, it is not as user friendly. Well, either way, all platforms are specifying expected input, expected output, and some module or command in the middle. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like Snakemake. <laughs> well, Nextflow has a similar market markup yeah. as well. Well, actually, what I really like about Nextflow is the way you can integrate containers in it. And it's literally just, here's a container, and you can have every single tool in a different container. And it's the ultimate in, uh, I suppose, computer science nerddom. I, I personally love this kind of high-level architecture, but obviously the downside is that uh, it can scare a lot of people um, quite quickly, but it does give you so much power and flexibility at your fingertips. That a few years ago, I would have imagined that we'd be here doing that. Yeah, actually, uh, the, you know the Innuendo project in Europe? Mm. Um, they're, they're using Nextflow and and um, containers for their for their flows, for their workflows. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I've heard some people using B pipe. Yeah, a few people at CDC are using B pipe. Um, I haven't gotten my hands too much into it. Um, it's a, it is a really cool Java based command line B pipe. Uh, uh, B pipe is a really cool Java based uh, workflow, and you put in rules. Um, I would say it's similar to how you're describing Snakemake. Oh no, Java, my God, that's that's like, I remember back from my undergraduate days having to learn Java and all the pain involved in there. Well, it's slightly better than C. It's not that bad now. Java 1.8 is definitely different to 1.4. Yeah. Back in the day. Oh, is it 1.6 at one point? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I oh, yeah. suppose if, if you're getting into languages then, um, one key thing that I would say is, don't go reinventing the wheel for like say file parsers and anything like that. You know, if you're manually parsing a fast queue file, then you're doing something wrong or blast results or even, you know, a, a tab limited file. There's loads and loads of libraries out there, like say BioPython or uh, CSV readers, which can just read all of this stuff in for you in one go and give you a lovely pretty object. And it sorts everything out, you know, it's doing it efficiently and it's, um, 
making sense of all the little uh, edge cases that uh, pop up with file formats, like with fast key files, you know, being more than four lines, if they are split, these libraries take care of all that for you. So, you know, don't go reinventing the wheel by doing your own parsers, thinking you can get a bit faster. There's a reason why they're a little bit slower. Yeah, very good points. Yep. <laughs> so one area that we're always working on is phylogenetics, looking at the relationships of our different genomes. And uh, I think at the moment, there's so many huge monolithic groups working in this area that for a little guy to come up with a new algorithm is just not really possible. I mean, if, you, if you're going to write a good phylogenetic tool, you're competing with Raxamel, IQtree, Beast, RevBase, which is replacement for Mr. Bayes. Uh, I mean, we've seen it that within this group, like FastTree is largely replaced by IQtree now. And for someone else, it's a saturated market. I really just don't see what else anyone can bring to the table. And then certainly if you look at the RaxML, like the, these guys are fantastic. They really do delve into it and they compile it for different uh, instruction sets, you know, to make the absolute best use of uh, your Intel or AMD chips. Like these are things you can't compete with. You know, you've got hardcore computer scientists and uh, people who really, really, really know how to get the most out of a computer. And they've done a really good job and they continue to maintain these things. And if you think you can do it better, well, you know, you're, you're probably not going to. Speaking of code compilation, it's a bit of a segue, but I think with BWMEM, they've uh, teamed up with IBM to, to squeeze the most out of the algorithms. Well, actually I've, I've seen um, some, uh, some companies are selling FPGA boards to do alignment and glass as well. Which is kind of interesting, but you know, you have to go and re-implement the algorithms from scratch. So it, it's limiting at the same time. But if you get, say, a thousand fold speed up, why not? Yeah, but the amount of technical expertise to do that, writing on FPGAs, is well outside the scope of a single bioinformatician or a PhD student. Yeah. Um, but if these are solved problems, then if they're so well solved that you can just buy a board and plug it in, you know, and there you go, there's your super fast aligner, you know? Yeah, it's, it's got, definitely the sort of space has gotten away from us, I think. <laughs> yeah, good point. There's no pro script on the world that's going to be able to compete with that. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. Thank you.